everyone. Welcome to the Revolution Podcast. We're the high school ministry at the church at Rocky Peak, and we'd love for you to join us in person on Saturday nights at 530. For more info about the ministry and upcoming events, find us on Instagram at HSRevolution. We hope you enjoy this time of teaching from God's Word. Hey, well, what's good, Revolution, on Saturday night? Now, if you are brand new to Revolution, welcome. We're excited you're here. If you're still the new freshman class, we're glad that you're getting your bearings. You probably have noticed I am not Tim Schoen, who is usually the pastor of the high school ministry here. My name is Dre. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at at Rocky Peak, which some of you have heard me say it before. What that means is you're usually going to find me in the other building yelling at your parents, but tonight... I get to be in this building yelling at you. And so I'm very excited to be here to lead us in this time. But sincerely, coming to Revolution is always a very, very special thing for me. In particular, it's a very special thing because many, many, many years ago when Dre was a 15-year-old high school student, it was the high school ministry here at Rocky Peak that led me to Jesus. And so this is a very special place because I know the power that this group can have to impact each and every one of you to just experience more of what Jesus has got for you. And so I'm here to lead our time of teaching, but I need you to know something. I'm not leading this time of teaching because I am perfect and flawless and have this all down. I'm leading this time of teaching because I'm here to learn alongside you. And I'm excited to learn alongside you tonight. And so there's a couple ways you can get ready for that. First of all, there is a note sheet somewhere around you on your chairs, underneath. There's also hopefully a pen or a writing implement or blood, something that you can use to be able to take down some notes during this time. I'm very forgetful, so the note sheet is a great tool to be able to remember things. Or for those of you that need to do two things while you're listening, draw a picture of me punching a luchador. I said that once in the college ministry, and someone did it, and it was awesome. So go ahead and enjoy that. The only thing I'm going to ask of you in this time is whether you're new to church or a long time or a long time fan, whether you're new to the idea of God or you are been growing in this, whether you're down with God or you're wrestling with it, all I'm gonna ask you during this time is if you would do me a favor, not be a distraction to your neighbors, not stab them, not bite them, not set them on fire. There'll be time for that later. But we just want to be able to respect God's word, not me, but God's word and what's gonna go down tonight. So I'm gonna go ahead and pray for us and we're gonna get started. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that the better we learn who you are, the better we learn who we really are. We live in a world where it seems like everyone is trying to tell us who we're supposed to be. But the only person who gets to tell us who we're supposed to be is you. And what you tell us, each and every one of us, is that we matter. Is that we've been created, that we are not alone or abandoned that you died to give us your life, your spirit, not just in this world, but for all of eternity. And for those of us that are here and are hungry to learn, Jesus, I pray that you would give them more. For those of us that are here that we're hurt and broken by what's going on at home or what's been going on at school in our own heads, give them healing and peace. For those of us that are here and we're apathetic and indifferent going, you know what, Jesus, I don't think I even care about you. Give them grace for all of us, Jesus. Show us more of who you are. It's in your name. Everybody said, amen. So let me start off by saying, if you've ever spent any time with like little kids, like young kids, it's awesome. 
It's awesome for a lot of different reasons, not because of the smells. They smell bad, but it's awesome for a lot of different reasons. But one of my favorite things about hanging out with little kids, let's think about like kindergartners and youngers, is they are incredibly imaginative. It's wonderful to watch a young kid at play because they just create these incredible stories. And so one of my favorite questions to ask a young kid is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you know why it's one of my favorite questions to ask a young kid? Because they will never say, I want to work a mediocre, boring job. I want to have a very mediocre marriage, and I want to pay a lot of taxes to the government. Instead, what they're going to look at you and say is something epic. I want to taste ice cream for the rest of my life. I want to be this type. I want to invent roller coasters. It's awesome. So I've got three kids. My youngest right now, Isaiah, he's seven. If you ask him what he wants to be, he will look you straight at the eyes and say, can you throw that picture up? That he wants to be the WWE champion. This is him on our way to WrestleMania as I'm supporting his dreams. And he doesn't say it as a joke. He is convinced. Every time we're sitting together watching wrestling, he's like, Dad, when I'm a wrestler, Dad, when I'm doing this, when I'm getting hit by the chair, when I'm flipping, I go, today he's like, I need to grow my hair out. Why? Because I want to be a wrestler. And it always makes me think of when I was that age, what was my answer to the question? And so no joke, when I would answer that question when I was about kindergarten, can you throw the next slide up there? I said, I wanted to build a working DeLorean time machine from Back to the Future. Now, if you have no idea, because there's an age gap between some of us, what Back to the Future is, go home, buy it on Apple Movies, it will change your life. But I wanted to build a working DeLorean time machine from Back to the Future. And so, what did you want to be? Now I'm actually asking. So let me reason, when you were in kindergarten, if somebody said, what did you want to be? Do you want to be an actor? Do you want to be a space person? Do you want to be a dog? What did you want to be? Somebody help me out here. What do you remember from that era that was fantastical? Now you're all like, I don't want to raise my hand because it's going to sound stupid. That's the point. Tell everybody your name. Sophia. That's my sister's name. Awesome. Sophia, what did you want to be? A princess. Any particular type of princess, like Disney or European or what? Disney princess? Any particular Disney princess? I think I loved them all. Actually. Think like you loved them all because Belle's my girl. I love, uh, I love Belle, but that's awesome. Like somebody else, somebody else. Would you? Tell everybody your name. Lucas. What do you want to do? Batman. Batman. That's awesome. Why Batman? Because. <laughs> So not the justice and hell people, not the deep family tragedy, like rich. Lucas, I respect you. I respect that. Going Somebody else, what did you want to be when you were asked that? Tell everybody your name. Sadie. Sadie, what do you got? I wanted to be Hannah Montana. You wanted to be Hannah Montana back when Miley was good. <laughs> that, I know. It's a loss, right? You want, now, why Hannah Montana? Was that the goal, just making it to high school? And now that you are, is it really disappointing? <laughs> this is not what Hannah Montana prepared me for. You wanted to live the dual life? I like going in. I'll do one more. Did I see a hand right there. Tell everybody your name. I'm Trinity. Trinity. What did you want to be? Sully from the X? Scully from the X-Files. That's a good pull. Most of you probably have no idea what Trinity's talking about. Paranormal FBI agent. Why that? 
Your dad had the all figurines? I was really interested in the FBI aspect. Yeah. Dude, you need to go home after this and be like, hey, Dre says you raised me right. That is awesome. But let me make this point. It's fun as we think about that, right? But here's what's extraordinary to me. Nobody had to teach you to dream like that. No teacher, no parent had to sit you down and be like, okay, God has given you this amazing imagination, so don't dream little, dream big, dream more. Nobody had to teach you, you just knew how. And you know why you knew how? Because you were wired that way. God wired you, not just to have a big man imagination, but God wired you to yearn. Do you know that word yearning means you want something deeply. You want something more. God wired you to yearn for more than what you see right in front of you. In fact, I'm willing to bet, and I'm not asking you to raise your hands, but I'm willing to bet if I went around and asked you now, what are your hopes? What are your dreams? You would still probably answer, I want more. I want something bigger for my life. I want to experience something more than now. And again, that is something that God put in you. But there's a problem. And the problem is what we call sin. And and hear me, I understand that that sounds like the most churchy sentence anybody can say. Sin is the problem, but it's true. Because what sin does is that sin robs us of our ability to dream. Sin robs us of our ability to yearn. We feel this God-given or aching for more, and sin robs you of it by lying to you and said, no, 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 you're not meant for more. Do you know why? Because all you are are the flaws you see. All you are are your failures. All you are are the fact that you don't have the right friends or the right status. All you are is the fact that you have failed at this or that everybody sees you this way or this is the story of your life. You are not meant to mourn. And what we're going to see in our passage this evening is that Jesus gave you this desire for more, but not just for any old type of more. He gave you a desire to experience more in him, to live in more with him. And what he does first is he, rob, he, take, he deals with the sin that wants to rob you of that yearning and that reality. And so we're going to see that um, in our passage this evening. But for those of you that are brand new or just need a refresher, if you look up at the screens, a couple weeks ago, Tim kicked off a series called Miracles, the Character of the Kingdom. And what this series is, is that revolution is going through some key miracles in the Bible to see that miracles aren't simply these cool or awesome events, but miracles reveal the character of God. And why that's important is a lot of people have a lot of different opinions of who who Jesus is and what Jesus stood for. And so we need to be a people that go to the word of God and go, what did the real Jesus actually say? What does he mean? What is he really like? And that's what the miracles reveal to us. And so what I want to invite you to do, if you've got a Bible, open them up. If you've got an app, turn it on. There are two halves to the Bible. The first half is called the Old Testament. The second half is called the New Testament. The New Testament begins with four books that teach us, that tell us about the life and teachings of the life of Jesus called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to go to the second of those Gospels, the Gospel of Mark. So go ahead and turn there. Go ahead and flip there on your apps. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2. 
And as you're turning there, let me set a foundation for us. We've got a very big room, and that's an awesome thing. And in a big room like this, there are a lot of different views of the Bible. There are some of you here that your view of the Bible is high and positive. You would go, man, the Bible is God's word. The Bible's important. The Bible is powerful. There are some of you here that you would go, yeah, I think the Bible's fine. I don't think I really care that much, but it's an okay thing, right? There are some of you here that would probably go, I'm very anti the idea of the Bible. The Bible leads to hate. The Bible distorts things. Go on. Wherever you're at, awesome. I'm glad you're here. And my hope is that tonight, we're not going to be able to deal with or answer with all of your questions, but my hope is that we're going to be able to give you some clarity in some areas, and my hope is that we're going to be able to give you some other questions to be thinking about, because questions are good, and they can lead us to Jesus and what he's got for us, all right? So we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Now, if you don't happen to have your Bible or a phone, it's going to be up on the screens, or you can listen to my beautiful voice. So Mark chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So let me stop and explain a little bit of what's going on. So Jesus is in the city of Capernaum. Capernaum actually still exists today. Its ruins are in Israel. And that's one of my favorite things about the Bible, is that the Bible, whatever you believe about the Bible, the Bible didn't take place in a fictional land like Narnia or Middle Earth or anything like that. The Bible took place in our world. And so about nine years ago, I was in the city of Capernaum. And it's fascinating to see. And so Jesus, when it said he came home, Jesus was from Nazareth, but when he was doing his ministry, his thing, Capernaum was likely like a home base because it was strategic and central to all the areas that he was traveling by. And so Jesus had gone viral. And so just like when somebody goes viral in this day and age, he was incredibly popular, but actually I think a better word is infamous. Everyone was talking about Jesus. Everyone was curious about Jesus. There were definitely a lot of people that were offended and upset by Jesus, but what everybody wanted was they wanted a better look. Again, pre-internet, pre-cell phones and all that. So they would travel to where Jesus is coming. So Jesus has come to Capernaum and the house is full. Now we need to not picture this as a house or an apartment like ours. An ancient Israel house was probably about one long rectangle, not that much bigger than the way our our seats are set up right here. Matthew, can you go to that first picture? So when I was in Israel about nine uh, years ago, we went to Caper- near Capernaum and we went to a house. So this is likely the type of house that it's talking about. And imagine it's full, like cover to cover, no so- I mean, shoulder to shoulder, no social distancing in any way, shape, or form. And this crowd that is filling this house and even spilling out, they're there for different reasons. There are people there because they are bought into Jesus and they want to hear more of him. There are people there because they're curious, they're seekers, they're skeptics. There are people there that are like, oh, I hear this guy does tricks. Do a trick. There are people there because they don't like Jesus and they're there to be angry and they're there to try to catch him into something. So this crowd, even though it's a big crowd, is not all pro-Jesus, all right? So let's keep that image up, but let's keep reading. 
Verse three, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get, to him, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the mat the man was laying on. So the first question we have to ask is, why did they bring a paralyzed man to Jesus? And again, Jesus had gone viral and it wasn't always clear But people had heard that this man, this teacher, seemed to have an ability to heal. Maybe he could heal their friend. And so imagine this picture. They're bringing their paralyzed friend, and there is no room for them to get in, let alone for them to get a mat and a man that's laying down in. And so what's their next option? Let's go to the roof. I would have loved to have thought to have listened to them processing this. We can't get in the house. So what do we do? Property damage. Let's get up there. You know it's a group of guys as they go into that. Can you go into the next picture, Matthew? So what's interesting is this is the inside of that house. So this is the type of roof. And again, the engineering back then was incredible because they didn't need a jackhammer to build, to dig a hole. Again, they weren't planning on property damage. They were just going to dig this hole with what they had, but yet it was strong enough to be able to hold all five of them, but yet with what they had, they were able to create this hole to go down, to, to be able to lower their friend down. Now, again, I would have loved to have known what the thought process was. I would have loved to have known what it was like if you were somebody inside the house listening to Jesus, and then all of a sudden pieces of roof start falling on you and you look up and you see a hole and some dude being lowered down. That's a conversation starter, right? Now, before I move on, I just got to say something and it's not the point of this message, but it needs to be said. These are good friends. Not just with the property damage thing, but in that culture and society, if you were paralyzed, that made you an outcast. If you were an outcast, most people wanted nothing to do with you. This man was likely ignored, was likely on the lower end of the economic and the social scale. He was probably used to people not caring about him in any way, shape, or form. And whoever these four guys are, they are ride or die with him. If in high school and then in college and then in life, you're wondering what a good friend is, pick people that will dig a hole in a roof and lower you down to see Jesus with. These are good friends. So let's go to verse 5. So they lower this man, he's in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And I think I put that even in your note sheets, right? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now in a religious context, we're like, wow, that is beautiful. That is amazing, Jesus, right? But we need to ask the question, how did they react to that? And my strong guess that was one of the weirdest things they could possibly hear in that moment. They were still figuring out who Jesus was. They were there because their friend, paralyzed, who cannot walk, needed help. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Let me paint a picture of how weird this probably was. Imagine, and many of you don't have to imagine, you have a terrible trampoline accident and you break something. Some of you are reliving it, aren't you? And you get taken to the emergency room and the doctor walks in and instead of resetting your bones, he goes, your sins are forgiven. 
you're probably not going to react well to that, right? Aside from that being incredibly weird, my instinct would be like, thanks, but that's not what I'm here for. I have another problem. So what is Jesus trying to say by saying your sins are forgiven? Well, let me keep using this doctor analogy. Imagine you go to the doctor because of this trampoline incident, and the doctor walks in and goes, yeah, I'm going to have to deal with the bone, but we discovered something else. You have terminal cancer. That's actually what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not minimizing the paralyzed man, his issues. Jesus is not minimizing the physical pain and the social loss and everything going in. But Jesus is not only speaking to that man, but he's speaking to each and every one of us. And he's saying, hey, there are very real pains and hurts in your life. But do you realize that the worst problem you have is a spiritual cancer called sin. And so sin is kind of a confusing word because some of us have grown up in church and we've heard that word a lot. And often it can be like, well, it's doing bad things, right? And sometimes if we've grown up in church, it can be like, I get it. I know what sin is, but the Bible always wants to be clear. Do you? Because this is the spiritual cancer that is gonna condemn us. So the reason why Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he's calling light to the fact, hey, we have a bigger problem called sin. Sin is not simply doing wrong things. Sin is doing the opposite of what God wants for us. Sin is outright rebelling against God. Sometimes in our heads, we have the sin scale. It's like, well, it's okay that I'm lying to my parents because I'm not murdering anybody. But again, the Bible calls sin, sin. And what the Bible says is that when we choose to sin, no matter, quote, how small or how big our sins, my sins are, what we are saying is, Jesus, I don't care about your leadership in my life. I don't want you to be in charge of my life. I don't want to do what you want me to do. And so I'm going to make my own choice because I'm smarter than you. That's sin. Now, some of us have had that flashback that, man, that's a conversation we've had our parents many times, right? Well, sin is that conversation with Jesus spiritually. I don't want you in my life. And because of that, why sin is a big deal is Jesus says, okay, you want this? Go. And he doesn't say that because he's happy to see you go, but he loves you. Is this what you want? Go. And it leads you away from God. And that leads us away from life. And the opposite of life is death. Sin sometimes gets minimized often in our culture. Sin gets celebrated. Yeah, you're a good liar. Yeah, you're this person defiant. Yeah, you're sending these type of pictures. Yeah, you're this on social media. But the reality is sin leads to death. I'm not asking you to raise your hand. But the problem with sin isn't just that sin leads to death. And we hear that and we go, man, yeah. If somebody told you some, this is going to lead you to death, you go, I want nothing to do with it. I don't want to go near it. I don't want to go there. But the truth about sin, sin is really compelling, isn't it? Sin is really compelling. Again, don't raise your hands. But have you ever found yourself in a situation where you compromised something you knew was wrong because you wanted something else more? 
Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're like, no, I know this would be wrong. I know this would be wrong in a type of romantic relationship, but you know what? I want that more than what I want than God. Hey, I know using, talking to this person this way. I know making fun of that person that way. That's going to hurt them. That's wrong. And in peacetime, we might go, hey, I would never do that. But when we find ourselves in the temptation of sin, it's compelling, isn't it? The reality is that sin is very, very compelling. And that's why the beautiful thing about the Bible is that the Bible never minimizes how it talks about sin. The Bible always wants to know that sin doesn't lead to anything but destruction. And I'm forgetful. We're forgetful. And so the Bible is often telling us this to remind us, hey, it seems like you're going to get what you want, but all that's going to do is it's going to destroy you. If you go in that direction, you may get an emotional feeling for a short amount of time, but eventually the sin is going to destroy you because it's going to separate you from God. And so the reason why Jesus is saying this is because he's calling light to a big problem, but he's also calling light to our world. Our world is screwed up because of sin. Our world is falling apart because of sin. We physically die because of sin. So Jesus is saying the root cause of this man's paralysis is because of sin. He's not saying he's any more sinful than anyone else. He's saying this isn't right. He shouldn't be this way. This is wrong, and this is what sin does. And so this man's paralysis is a picture of our hearts spiritually because of sin. It's destroying us. And so again, Jesus is saying, we have a problem we don't realize. But here's the beautiful thing of Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven. He's saying, you have a bigger problem than you realize, and I'm here to bring an even bigger solution. Sin does not need to be the end of your story. Sin does not need to be the big part of your story. Again, that yearning for more, Jesus is saying, I want to write more to your story. I like to think of it in terms of movies. Do you remember the first time you watched Avengers Infinity War? Do you remember the emotional pain when all the Avengers started like dusting and going away? I've been in a lot of full movie theaters in my life because I like movies. That was one of the most silent times in a movie theater I ever was, except that you could hear the sniffles all around after Avenger and Avenger went away. In particular for me, my favorite fictional character, I love books, comic books, video games, music, movies, all of that stuff, but my favorite fictional character over anything is Peter Parker. So can you throw that image up on the screen? So when we get to this scene, and he goes, Mr. Stark, I don't feel good. And he starts going, I don't want to go. 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 Revolution, let me bare my soul to you. I did not cry the first time I saw my wife down the aisle at her wedding. I did not cry at the birth of any of my children. You better believe I cried when Peter Parker disappeared in Infinity War. Now, some of us have just relived the emotional trauma of Infinity War, Right? Now imagine that they didn't make any more Avengers movies after that. That would suck, right? If they put you through all that trauma and they're just like, and that's the end. They lost, Thanos wins, go live your life, people. That would be terrible, right? And so what Jesus again is saying in this miracle, sin is gonna lead you to this ending. 
But Jesus is saying, I've got more story to tell in your life. I don't want this to be the end of your story. And so come to me so I can deal with the sin. And then you can experience more. And so actually that leads me there on your note sheet. I've got one. We've got a couple of fill-ins we're going to do. And this first one is this, that Jesus has a much bigger vision for your life. Jesus has a much bigger vision for your life. That yearning you've had since as long as you can remember, again, that's something that God gave you. And that's a good thing. But often that yearning can lead us in a lot of different places to try to find something to satiate it. What we see is that Jesus has a much bigger vision for our life. And so what satisfies that yearning is not the external So hear me, sometimes we think that yearning is I want a group of friends or maybe it's I want a dating relationship. Sometimes it's I want a type of status or to achieve something in school or in sports. Sometimes it's, man, I want this stuff. I want to be financially different than we are. And hear me, in the right context, in the right settings, those things can all be awesome things. They can be wonderful things, but they're never gonna satisfy your heart because they're all external things. The only thing that can satisfy that yearning in our heart is our heart to be transformed, to be changed from the inside out. And that's what Jesus means when he says your sins are forgiven. And so instead of son, your sins are forgiven, put your name in there. Dre, your sins are forgiven. And what he's saying is I am here to satisfy that yearning in your hearts. So it's pretty awesome, and now our story is about to get kind of nutty. Verse 6. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So let's, let's unpack this a little bit. The teachers of the law likely meant a group of religious leaders, let's call them the establishment, called the Pharisees. Now, throughout the Gospels of Jesus, the Pharisees, for the most part, are like the main antagonists. They're the villains. Again, not all of them, but for the most part, they're the ones that are often butting heads with Jesus because they don't like Jesus because he's a threat to everything that they had considered normal up to that point. And the truth is, we can relate to that. They want something more than they want Jesus, so they're willing to sin. They're willing to compromise. They're willing to let pride kick in And so they're here not because they're fans of Jesus. They're here because they want to hear and be mad. They're kind of hate-listening Jesus right now. And they use this word that for us it's easy to gloss over, but is a very significant word. It's a word called blasphemy. And the reason why that's a very significant word is that the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, describes blasphemy as claiming to be God when you're not. And it's such a big deal that the punishment for blasphemy is death. So this is a big deal, right? And they're likely going, yeah, awesome. If he's blaspheming, we can eliminate him and we can live the life we want to live and solve all of our problems. So verse eight, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. Okay, pause right there. They weren't near him. They were talking to each other. 
Imagine if you were on this side of the room gossiping about somebody on that side of the room and you're like, I can't believe Allison. Look at her in those sandals. I can't believe that. And from across the room, she's just like, I heard you. Shut up. In a very Jesus-y way, that's what's happening right now. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, so he didn't just like, no, he went and addressed it. He's bringing the heat. Why are you thinking these things? (laughs) Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Okay, so stop right there. He asked them, which of the two is easier? Neither one, right? It's an impossible choice. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or stop being paralyzed? What's the point of what Jesus is saying? Only God, the one and only, could do either of those things. Verse 10, but I want you to know that the Son of Man, that's a title that Jesus has for him, it's a messianic title, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, you have never, we have never seen anything like this. And so Jesus gives them an impossible choice because the, proof, the point of that choice is only God can do either of these things. And then what does he do? He declares, you're right, I am God. And he does both. He forgives the man of his sins and then he tells him to get up. And again, don't misinterpret. Sometimes when we read these like fantastic things happening in the Bible, we sometimes assume that everybody around was just cool with this, Right? This had to be shocking to the people, right? Because they've known that this man, this is a small town. They've known that this man has been paralyzed most of his life. And this teacher, this Jesus, this guy goes, get up. And he does. I would have no words for that. They would have no words for that. But again, why does Jesus do it? Well, Jesus started by saying, I'm going to forgive you of your sins. And so again, this man's paralysis was a picture of what sin does to our heart. And then Jesus goes, I'm going to heal this man physically again as a picture of what Jesus does to our hearts when he forgives us of our sins. Jesus says to your, to your hearts, hey, because you've repented, get up. Get up. Live again. It's time for a new story and a new life. And that actually leads me to your second fill-in. Repentance is the pathway into that vision. So the first fill-in was Jesus has a much bigger vision for your life. The second one is that repentance is the pathway into that vision. And so words are powerful, right? Like just a word alone can create emotions, right? There are words that all you got to do is hear the word and you get happy, right? Like for me, if like I hear the word donuts, I'm like, I'm happy. That is a good thing. But at the same time, there are words that all you got to do is you got to hear them and you have a opposite reaction, a negative reaction, maybe even a fearful reaction, right? For me, like if I hear like the words Brussels sprouts, like immediately my stomach hurts and it churns. If I hear the words Dallas Cowboys, I get angry. I get very angry. Yeah, we beat them in the playoffs. They get very angry. 
And I don't like that. And so let me ask you, and again, just rhetorically, that means just to your head, what's your emotional reaction to the word repentance? Because it helps to know where we're starting from. Because let me be honest with you, for a long, long time, even as a Christ follower, that word scared the daylights out of me. Because it sounds like if you were going to pick, a, if you were going to make a list of the scariest religious words you could come up with, to me, repentance would be at the top. Because in my head, I always pictured either this angry finger from heaven or this really angry old religious dude screaming, repent, in this deep, scary voice. Like I would imagine hearing it at like a Halloween Horror Nights, like a, like a maze where they're just going, repent, repent. Because that's what I thought it was was repentance, was God reminding me that I'm a terrible human being, I need to live in guilt, I need to live in shame, I will never measure up. And here's one of the awesome things about God. God often comes into our lives and goes, you're cute, you think you know, you don't know. And he changes everything. You think you know how much I love you? That's cute, you don't know. You think you know how valuable you are to me? That's adorable, you don't know. You think you know what the most important thing in life is? That's great. You don't. Let me teach you. And so when it comes to repentance, I've come to learn that repentance is beautiful because it's what leads me, it's what leads us into God's vision for our life. You know, the New Testament was written primarily in ancient Greek. It wasn't written in English. And so in our English Bibles are translations of the Greek. And the word repentance in Greek simply means to turn around and go in the opposite direction. So here's what's beautiful about repentance. Repentance is me, is you coming to Jesus and it's admitting and acknowledging, Jesus, I've messed up. And it's being specific, Jesus, I've messed up with my lust or my anger. I've messed up with my fear. Jesus, I've messed up with my priorities and my time. Jesus, I've messed up with these addictions. Jesus, I've messed up. And I'm sorry. And I need your help because I can't change on my own. And here's the beautiful thing about repentance. I have three kids. I grew up as the youngest of three kids. When you have siblings and a parent that forces you to apologize to someone, you don't mean it. Repentance is not because you're being forced. Repentance is you go, I believe Jesus is exactly who he says he is. I know I've messed up, but I believe that Jesus brings more to my story than the mistakes. And I want more. And repentance is, I'm not gonna be perfect, but Jesus, with your help, I wanna go in the other direction. I want to start learning how to deal with not wanting people's approval as much. Jesus, I need your help and I need to learn to deal with my anger or my fear. Jesus, this pain I have towards my dad, like I need to let go of this and I know it's not going to happen overnight. I need your help and we're going to take one step at a time. That's repentance. And here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. Repentance is not meant to make you live in guilt and in shame. That's what the devil does. Repentance doesn't feel good at first because we're acknowledging we messed up and that never feels good, right? But the beautiful thing about Jesus is he goes, yeah, you did. Now let me help you fix that. Let me change that. Let me lift you up because I have so much more for you to experience.
And that's why there in your note sheet, the last truth is that repentance is the ultimate miracle. Repentance is the ultimate miracle because the only reason we can experience repentance is because Jesus rose from the grave. The resurrection is the ultimate miracle. It's the ultimate sign, as John's gospel would put. And so what repentance means is that over and over, we're saying, I don't want to live in death anymore. I want to live in your life. Repentance means that your sin and your failure is not the end of your story. It doesn't write the end of the story. It means you might have some work to do, but it means you don't do that work on your own. Repentance is God saying, I'm not going to kick you out and go figure it out. And then once you dealt with that sin, come back to me. He's going to go, I'm going to help you. And we're going to do this together. And so what do we learn about Jesus from this miracle? We learn that Jesus wants more for you than what this world can offer. We know that Jesus wants more for you than what sin can give you. Ultimately, what we learn about this miracle is you have no idea, but Jesus wants to give you one of how much he loves you. That's where that yearning is coming from. And so what do we do with this just as we wrap it up? There in Inochi... I put a section called one-on-one time with Jesus, two important prayers. And so hear me on this. When we get together here in Revolution, this is awesome. When you go to your life group, that is awesome. But what those meant is those are meant to be a catalyst. This is something I say in the other building often, that a catalyst is meant to be a boost in energy to push you and to teach you into something else. Revolution and your life groups are beautiful and necessary, but the biggest growth you're ever going to have is taking what you hear here, taking what you learn in your life group, and learning to spend time with God one-on-one. Because God is not meant to be a stranger to you. God is meant to be your father. God is meant to be the source of love. And the more you spend time with God one-on-one, the more loved you're going to feel, and the less sin is going to have a hold on you because you're going to go, why Why would I want to go on that road when what I've got with God is so good? That's the beauty of spending one-on-one time with God. And so to help, because that can sound scary and intimidating, prayer is simply talking. (laughs) Talking to God. And there's a lot of different ways you can do this, and I want to give you two. And so again, repentance is beautiful. There in your note sheet, you notice that I put Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is teaching us how to pray, and he says, and forgive us our debts. That means forgive us our sins. And so repentance isn't meant to be a one-time thing at the beginning of our journey with Jesus. It's meant to be regular. Again, why? Because Jesus regularly wants us to know that there's more for us. And so Michael, our pastor, put it once that whenever he gets to repent, he gets excited because he could go, God, I don't know how to solve this. This is now your problem. And you've got the power to do something about it. So let me give you two prayers. The first one is this. I want to challenge you to in the next 24 hours, that's a day, in the next 24 hours, to find a quiet spot. Maybe that's your room. Maybe that's a backyard. Maybe that's taking a walk. Maybe that's sitting in your car. Maybe that's in the garage. Maybe by the pool. Whatever that may be. To find a quiet spot where you're not going to be interrupted, I want to challenge you to put your phones on silent or to just turn them off. I want to challenge you to put on some headphones and listen to some worship music. Just Spotify it if you need to. And to say these two prayers. The first one is this. Jesus, change my heart towards repentance. The first prayer is a wonderfully honest prayer. 
sometimes we really don't like the idea of repentance because maybe we don't want to give up what it is we need to repent of. Or maybe it seems scary. Or maybe we feel guilt, be like, man, I've screwed up big. And when I say change our heart, it's to remind us, this is God saying your sins are forgiven and leading us to experience more and new life. And so we need to start there. And here's the beautiful thing about God. Being honest with God is not gonna cost you. God is beautiful that he invites your honesty and he already knows. But when we put it in words, there's a power to it to say, God, you're right. I've needed to pray this prayer many times in my life. God changed my heart towards repentance. Because once we do that, then we can say the second prayer. Jesus, what sin do you want to heal? And the key word in that is the word heal. Jesus, what sin do you want to heal? Jesus, where do you want to give me more in my life? I thought this was going to lead me somewhere well, but you know what? It hurts. It's costing me. Jesus, where do you want me to heal? Maybe it's a sin that you are causing. Maybe you need healing because somebody's sin has hurt you. Jesus, what sin do you want to heal? But the beautiful thing about doing this is that by talking with God about repentance, he's going to remind you of how much he loves you. And let me leave you with this last picture. I've got three kids. And as a parent, that means I'm often dealing with discipline. (laughs) You know why? Because they're broken human beings, just like I am. But ever since my kids were young, Megan and I, my wife, we've been committed that whatever discipline we're dealing with our kids, we always end with two key questions. Has God's love for you changed in any way because of what you did? And they know to say, no. Will it ever change no matter what you do? No. And then the second question, has my love for you changed in any way because of what happened? No. Will it ever change no matter what? No. But to be honest, that first question is way more important than the second one. I want them to always know that no matter what sin throws their way, God is always rooting for them. And the biggest way he can root for them is by dealing with that sin. So for some of you, this is going to be a beautiful 24 hours. For some of you, this is going to be hard because you need to acknowledge something you don't want to acknowledge. But I promise you, God will lead it to a place of healing. Not a place of shame. Not a place of guilt. Even if those conversations feel hard, remember God is saying, I love you. I want more for you. And how we experience that more is by removing this sin in your life. So let's go and get some work done. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. We're going to pray, and we're going to go ahead and end with one last song. Let me pray. Jesus, oh my goodness, I love you. Jesus, you died for my sins before I even loved you. Jesus, you died for me when I wanted nothing to do with you. When as an angry teenager, I was angry because of what my family had done to me. 
I was angry because of what my friends had done to me. I was angry at the things I didn't have that I thought I wanted. I was angry for so many different things, Jesus. And I kept telling you, I don't want you in my life. I don't want you to tell me what to do. And yet you still loved me. You died for me. And you forgave me of my sins. And so at 15 years old, when I finally realized that and said, okay, Jesus, you win. I want you to have my life. You came in and said, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. And Jesus, I have not been perfect since then. There have been times when we've had to do some hard surgery. There have been times when I've had to go to people and in tears say, I have hurt you and wronged you. I've done something wrong. But every time I've done that, you've been with me. You have shown me your love in a deeper way. Your forgiveness teaches me a beautiful truth about who I am, that I do have value and worth and in love. Jesus, for any high school student here that is afraid of repentance, afraid of what sin has done, you already died for them. You already rose again. They were worth dying for, no matter the sin, no matter the pain, no matter the hurt. And so we say thank you for that, Jesus. And so as we sing this last song, we want this to be a beautiful prayer saying thank you, Jesus, for who you are. And it's in your name. We all said amen. Let's stand together.